good singing this morning. Take your Bibles, turn with me to Genesis chapter number 24. In our Walking with God series, we've covered Noah and now Abraham, and we are deep into our study in Abraham and his walk with God. This week we will be studying faith and success, or faith as it applies to success, or what success looks like, really, in the Christian life. And next week we will finish Abraham by seeing faith and substance. Let's read one verse, we'll pray, I'll tell the story of Genesis 24 so we set the context, and then we'll get into the preaching this morning. The Bible says in verse number one, it came to pass after these things that God, I'm in the wrong chapter, (laughs) some of you are looking at me like you're weird, I chose not to wear my glasses and I looked at chapter 22 and chapter 24. Let's get in the right chapter since you're there, I'll join you. It says in verse number one, and Abraham was old and well stricken in age. And the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. Father, help us, I pray, as we come to your book, as we come to your word. May we see the truth of this blessing that you gave to Abraham. May we understand what it means, and may we see how it comes to be. Father, I pray that we would be like Abraham. Often, Lord, when we pray that or when we say that, We think it's an unattainable goal, but success is a reality for each of us. I pray that we would understand this truth this morning, and may we follow hard after you as Abraham did. May our walk be a walk of faith. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Here in Genesis chapter number 24, what we would read, if we were to continue to read, if you have your Bibles open there, you can look down to verse number 7, you will see what success looks like. And you say, success looks like marrying someone or finding a wife for my child? Well, that's the context of Genesis 24. But the success is that God would bless him, not just with his seed, and we saw last week that there was sacrifice, but that there would be a bride and that there would be the multiplication, there would be the propagation of his family, and the promise that God initially made would come true. Look what verse 7 says. Abraham's speaking here, and he's speaking to his servant, whom he is sending to find a bride for his son Isaac. Abraham says, The Lord God of heaven, which took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred, and which spake unto me, and that swear unto me, saying, Unto thy seed will I give this land, he shall send his angel before thee, and thou shalt take a wife, unto my son from thence, or from the people from which he himself had come. What a truth that is. What a hope that is for us, that we can be ourselves someday, old and stricken in age, and God has blessed us in all the things that we've endeavored to do for his glory through his grace. We have studied Abraham's walk with God. That walk was a walk first in faith, in surrender. It was a walk of faith in stewardship we studied second. 
Third, we studied it was a walk of faith in sanctification or the process of setting himself apart. The first lesson with Pharaoh was a lesson in surrender. The second lesson with Abimelech was a lesson in sanctification. You got to keep doing the denying. You always have to deny yourself. When the old sins rear their head, we must instead follow after God by faith. We studied last Sunday then. It was a walk of faith that was in sacrifice. Now we see that his walk with God is in success. Take your Bibles and turn over to Hebrews chapter number 11. Hebrews chapter number 11. Now we're going to read a longer passage of scripture here. But we're going to see what the writer of Hebrews says about this man, Abraham, and the success that was his because of the faith that he had in God. In other words, the walk with God that Abraham expressed, the walk with God that Abraham demonstrated was a walk that you and I can have this morning as well. And the success that he enjoyed is the success that we can enjoy. Look in Hebrews 11 and verse number 8. Now, I've abstained in the first four messages from coming to this passage because it says everything. It tells us everything we need to know. And next week when we look in substance, we'll look primarily in this passage. But we must see what God measures as success. Look in verse number 8. The Bible says, By faith Abraham, when he was called to go out into a place which he should after receive for an inheritance, obeyed. What a great truth. And he went out, not knowing whither he went, By faith he sojourned in the land of promise, as in a strange country, dwelling in tabernacles with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he looked for a city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Let me explain that verse, if I may. Verse number 10, what God is saying to us about Abraham is that he desired a place of dwelling that was beyond this temporal realm. He wanted something that God himself would provide for Abraham and what he provides for each of us. In verse 11, through faith also Sarah herself received strength to conceive seed and was delivered of a child when she was past age because she judged or discerned him faithful who had promised. Therefore sprang there even of one and him as good as dead, so many as the stars of the sky in multitude and as the sand which is by the seashore innumerable. Now notice he says in verse 13, these all. Well, the these all are Abraham and Sarah. It also, I believe, applies to Isaac and Jacob. But the context here is of the life of faith of both Abraham and Sarah. And so he says, these all died in faith, not having received the promises or the fullest fulfillment of those promises, but having seen them afar off and were persuaded of them and embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For they that say such things, that includes you and I this morning, declare plainly that they seek a country. And truly, if they had been mindful of that country from whence they came out, they might have had opportunity to have returned. In other words, if they thought a lot about the old life they had, they might have tried to go back there. But they instead decided to follow God. Verse 16, but now they desire a better country. That is in heavenly Wherefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he hath prepared for them a city. By faith, Abraham, when he was tried, offered up Isaac, and he that had received the promise offered up his only begotten son. Friends, this is what success looks like to God. 
Success is not a big house. Success is not a grand ministry. Success is not name or notoriety or power or position or prestige. It is not in your possessions. Success with God is how faithful are you in walking with Him. That's it. That's it and it alone. A life of faith is a life that is successful before Almighty God. Faith in Christ gives you purpose and meaning. Faith provides the answers to the why, to the what, to the how, and to the where in our service to Almighty God. Abraham's walk would receive from Christ what we as believers in this age long to hear from Jesus Christ, and that is this, well done, good and faithful servant, enter ye into the joy of the Lord. So what does success in your walk with God look like? How does it come about, we might ask? There are two aspects, two elements, if you will, two sides of a coin that are true in the life of Abraham that we have looked at over these last four weeks that need to be brought forward in its own message today so that you understand success in your walk with God. And that is first that you prove God. He was busy proving God throughout his whole life. God wants us to prove Him. That's a Bible truth. If you're a Christian this morning, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ this morning, God wants you to trust Him in a way that makes Him active in your life. You know, the problem for most Christians is they don't make God active in their own life. They are very active, and at seasons they call upon God for a miracle. Well, it wasn't Abraham. Abraham, from beginning in chapter 12 and verse 1, when he understood the call from the Lord and went out of Ur of the Chaldees, left where he was in residence then of Haran, and came to the promised land, he was obedient to God, but the whole time he kept saying in his heart and his mind, God, I'm trusting you in this. I believe you will do what you say, but you need to prove it day by day. Friends, God is not afraid of us saying that to him. He longs for us to have that kind of intimate and deep relationship with Him. So what do I mean by proving God? I'm not suggesting that we provoke God. Well, Thomas is our example of that, isn't he, in the Bible? Well, if I can see Him and touch Him, then I'll believe Him. That's provoking God. That is doubting God. That's not at all what I'm talking about with Abraham this morning. No, Abraham, in his walk with God by faith, was a success because he always said, Okay, God, you said it, and I'm going to prove that you said it because I'm going to do it. Did Sarah always know everything that God told Abraham? From our reading of the scriptures, we don't see that she was always told everything that Abraham was told. But as he proved it to God, she trusted in Abraham as he trusted in God. Boy, there's a great process within the Christian walk, within the Christian home and the Christian family. As we come to the word of God, we can prove it day by day. So I'm not suggesting that we provoke him as the Israelites did or as Thomas did. I'm suggesting that when God says for us to do something, we, like Abraham... Act in faith, proving His word and His will to be both right and good. The problem with the world, or for the world today, is that they look at Christians and there is no proof that we actually trust God. They look at your life as a worker on the line with them, or in the office with them, or uh, in the field, or wherever you work with them. They look at you in the neighborhood, they look at you in the community, and they say, prove it! And God says, yes, prove it. 
Prove me to them. Trust me. Holy, follow me. Proving God begins with our faith, letter A, in his deity. Do you know why we don't prove God day by day? Why we don't put our full trust in him and relax into who he is? It's because we don't know who he is. If you will not spend time in this book, you will never know him. But if you will spend time in this book, you will come to know him as Abraham came to know him. He proved God's deity, who he was in his very character, who he was in his very nature. God is not bothered by you seeking him. He's the creator of the universe, as Edward rightly pointed out in his stewardship challenge this morning. He wants you to come to him. He wants you to draw nigh to him. His whole purpose in creating us as a being, as a race, as intelligent free will creatures, was that we might choose to enter into a loving relationship with him. Amen. And so when we trust him and prove him, we are trusting the constant of his divine nature. We are trusting who he is in his essence, in his person. So I ask you this morning, and I put a list of them on your outlines this morning in your notes, you see them. Who is God? Zach, in his ordination council in about five or six weeks, is probably like, yeah, I'm glad you're putting this in. I'm going to rob all these verses. He's already done this and extremely well. You'll see it in a couple of weeks. But the point is, this is a very simple theological explanation to you. In other words, we cannot be afraid of the deep things of God and just stay in the kiddie pool with God. If we're going to prove him and be a success, then we have to get out of our Sunday school only knowledge of who God is. Abraham, when he left, heading towards the promised land, was leaving the kiddie pool and going into the deep end. It was time for him to swim. That's what it means to prove God and his deity. God first, I put in your notes, is omniscient. James, the pastor of the church at Jerusalem, helping to give an answer to the early church, in the midst of his response, says a wonderful truth about the omniscient nature of Almighty God. In Acts 15 and verse 18, he says, Known unto God are all his works from the beginning of the world. Stop and think about that. It has been estimated that some 50 billion people or more, however many lived before the flood, have been born and died or walked the face of planet Earth. 50 billion. Eight and a half billion are alive right now as we speak. 50 billion souls have lived in this world. That's an amazing thought. Did you know that God knew every one of them down to the very hairs of their head? That's what James is alluding to. God knows everything, things actual, and I would even argue things possible. There's a concept within theology called the all-wise God, the omniprescient God. And what we find beyond just omniscience is that God doesn't just know what is. He knows what will be. He also knows what could be, and he knows what might be. There's nothing that surprises him. And often as Christians, when I say that, it surprises them. There's nothing. Why? Because he's a divine, knowing God. The second aspect of his perfection that we must know is his omnipresence. The psalmist wrote these wonderful words in verse 7 of Psalm 139. Whither shall I go from thy spirit? Or whither shall I flee from thy presence? He is essentially asking there, David, where can I go where God isn't? And the answer is rhetorically, nowhere. 
He would go on in verse number 8 of the same passage and speak about the, God's presence in unlimited dimension. In verse 9, he would speak of undaunted destinations. In other words, God can go anywhere he wants because he's omnipresent. He's already there in it. He's unaffected by the darkness as well. Light and dark are nothing to him. A third aspect of his nature and perfection is his omnipotence. The word almighty is used only of God in the Bible, and it's used 56 times of God. It's how we understand the omnipotence of God. He first revealed himself to our study candidate here, Abraham, as almighty to him. Here's what he said in Genesis 17 and verse 1. And when Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said unto him, I am the almighty God. Walk before me and be thou perfect. Listen, only if you're omnipotent do you introduce yourself as omnipotent. God is all-powerful. He's in control. The next aspect or attribute that we might say or perfection that we should know is its eternality. The psalmist said this in Psalm 90 and verse 1, Lord, thou hast been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth or ever thou hadst formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. I've talked many times in here when we talk about the eternality of God, the very nature of His deity. Eternality means there is no beginning and no end. In math, do you know what that's called? It's called a line. My boys, or my oldest, Drew, is now in algebra. <sighs> no, that's what he says, not what I say. But the point is he's in algebra, right? A line has no beginner, and that's eternity. Do you know what you are in a mathematical term? You're a ray. I like being a ray. Don't you like being a ray? Well, a ray has a point, and it has no ending. If you're a believer, you're a ray. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, mathematically, I can tell you what you are this morning. You are a segment. You have a beginning point, and if you do not accept Jesus Christ and you leave this earth, you will have an ending point. So there is a line, that's God. From everlasting to everlasting. Can I tell you something that will blow your mind this morning when you think of the eternality of God? The passage of time in the concept of the mind of God has not changed. In other words, it's literally the same day in the mind of God as when the psalmist wrote that word. Well, that was like 2,500 years ago. That's right. In the history of man, it's been 2,500 years. But to an eternal God, what is time? It's nothing. Ooh. That's a God you want to know. He's the ageless one because he doesn't age. Not because he looks good in his old age. He doesn't age. One of the greatest lies and fallacies that we believe when we look at the serial comics in the newspaper is God with a white beard and white hair. He is ageless. And we must understand that, God, because he's eternal. Another perfection that we must understand about God. And you say, all of this applies. Listen, friend, all of these things Abraham experienced. All of these things Abraham knew. All of these things Abraham would have to trust God in. He proved God's omnipotence. He proved God's omniscience. He proved God's omnipresence. He proved his eternality. Every step of his walk of faith was proving God in these areas. He's immutable. Do you know what immutable means? It means he never changes. James 1 and verse 17, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and cometh down from the Father of lights, 
with whom or in whom or which resides in him is no variableness. That word variableness means no changing. Neither a shadow. There's not even a hint of turning with him. The next attribute we must understand in his perfection is his holiness. God is separate from all that is unclean. And may I say to you, when Adam sinned, he plunged our race into a state of uncleanness. God is nothing like us. He's holy. But it's not just the negative of what he's not like, it's what he is. He is pure in all that he is. He's pure in all that he thinks. He's pure in all that he does. It's why when he comes to the priests who were in charge of worship, to the Levites in Leviticus 11, and the first half of that verse, he says to them in verse 44, I am the Lord your God. Ye shall therefore sanctify yourselves. In other words, you will set yourselves apart and ye shall be holy. You'll be different. Why? Because in my very nature, I am holy. The final one I put in here, at least for our discussion, and I think that Abraham personally experienced in his walk with God, is the infinite nature of his deity. What does it mean that he's infinite? Well, it means everything that we're not. We're finite. We have limited power. And you say, well, infinite just describes all of his character and his perfections. Yes, but I think it's alone to itself. It literally means he is limitless and unbounded. There is nothing that can contain or constrain God. There's nothing that can hold all of what he is and who he is. Here's how Solomon, the wisest man that ever lived, when he finished building the temple, here's what he records in 1 Kings 8 and verse 27. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? That's a great question. It shows his wisdom. Behold, the heaven, that is the atmosphere and the sky, that which we breathe in, that has our oxygen. Behold, the heaven, everything in our atmosphere, he says, and the heaven of heavens. When it was nighttime and he looked out at the stars, Solomon had no concept of how vast the universe was. But what he says here is absolutely true. He says, the heavens of heaven, heaven of heavens cannot contain who? Thee. How much less this house that I've built. Boy, the Jews, when they would come back to that temple and make much of that place, I often wonder if those who were there that truly believed in the unbounded God, the infinite God, would remind them this is just a place that he comes to dwell for a season. He is limitless. Abraham experienced all of these perfections of God's being, and he proved God in each of them throughout his walk with God. Friends, if you walk with God, you too will be proving his deity in all of these areas, and he will be found perfect in each of them for your every decision and for your every need. God is omniscient. He is omnipresent. God is omnipotent. He is eternal. He knows the beginning from the end, for he was there in both. What we must understand is that when I prove God, I prove who he is. He's not afraid of you trusting him. Proving God's deity is not questioning his deity. It is rather saying to God, I know that you're in control. I know that you are God. Please show me today an aspect of your deity that helps me along my journey. 
Your life will change when you daily prove God's divine presence in your life. Proving God's deity leads us to proving and knowing, let her be, His dependability. Look, once I know who God is, it should be pretty easy to start trusting Him. The problem for so many is they don't really believe who He is. A lot of times people, even in good churches, take Jesus and God along as a trinket. Just something they put in their hip pocket. I always like to think of a lot of Christians like those old guys, the bad guys especially, that you would see in the Wild West. Jesus and God and their their Bible philosophy was just another bullet on their bandolier that they would put around themselves. Well, that's not what God is. God is everything to you. And when we know God in that way, in who He is in His nature, we can begin to trust Him. We can depend upon Him. God is perfectly dependable. The psalmist said this in Psalm 33 and verse 8, Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of Him. Why? For He spoke, and it was done. He commanded, and it, whatever it was He commanded, stood fast. In context, He's talking about creation. The Lord bringeth the counsel of the heathen to naught. Hallelujah. He maketh the devices of the people of none effect. The counsel of the Lord standeth forever. The thoughts of His heart to all generations. Friends, that's a God you can trust. You say, well, Pastor, how do you know that Abraham trusted in that God? Well, Paul, writing to the Romans, tells us this in Romans chapter 4 and verses 20 and 21. He, that's Abraham, staggered not at the promises of God through unbelief, but was strong in faith, giving glory to God. Notice the next verse, verse 21, and being fully persuaded, he was completely convinced. He was wholly dependent that what he, God, had promised, he, God, was able to perform. God, you're dependable. I can trust you. I can lean my whole life on you. You know, there's a lot of folks that play the Christian game and are quasi-Christian in nature, and the main reason is they might know certain aspects of God, but they don't know if they can trust Him. And what Abraham's life teaches us is that you can wholly trust Him. He picked his life up and moved some 900 miles, likely, to a land that he didn't even hear about. Look, we have the Internet. If you're going to move somewhere, what do you do? You Zillow it. You Google it. You try to find out if there's good work there, if there's good churches there, if it's a good community, where the communities have the worst crime rate. You kind of investigate it. And so sometimes we take out the dependence on God and we say, well, this is a good decision for me. And what Abraham did was, I'm going to walk with you. And if you're leading me to that place, if this is the direction you're taking me, I'll obey. That's proving God. You prove his deity, you prove his dependability. Faith sets out to prove that God is trustworthy. By doing what He says, we make Him prove Himself. Now, don't hear that as me saying it arrogantly. It's me saying that biblically. God says to prove Him. He inspired the psalmist to write these words, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. I mean, that is proof. I want you to taste. Take of my word. Take of me. And you tell me if it's not good for you. And the answer is, every time someone's taken, they found that it is good. It's dependable. So many believers never consistently try to obey God. Thus, they can never fully claim to be depending upon God. Why do we do this? And the answer is because we've never tried to fully trust in Him. 
Let me give you a couple examples that play out I see as a pastor in our church family lives, more importantly in our community's lives or in the Christian community's lives at large. How about training our children the way the Bible describes? Well, I know what the Bible says about X, Y, or Z in discipline or correction or nurturing them in the admonition of the Lord, but I have a better thought. Okay, so you don't depend upon God and you don't find His Word dependable in raising your children. Can I suggest something to you? When your kids don't turn out right for God, please don't come blame me. Don't point your finger at the church or the people of God who are a bunch of hypocrites. If you're not depending upon God and taking what His Word says in training your children in the way that they should go, then, friend, there's no one's fault but yours. You see, a walk of faith matters, and a walk with God has consequences, both positive and negative. Well, I just think I don't like that part of what it says in training our children. It's old and archaic. We're going to get to that point in just a moment in letter C. But if you depend upon God and you trust Him, then everything He says you will do. Not some of the things He says. How about living your marriage according to God's designed role and responsibility? I thoroughly enjoyed marriage counseling, pre-marriage counseling with Dylan and Melanie yesterday morning. I always enjoy that. Any of those that have gotten married in here. In fact, Jamie reading the Bible. Every time he does the stewardship challenge and as a deacon, I'm reminded back when he and Min Young got married and I did their marriage. Every marriage counseling that I've done, we go through the lesson on the role of a husband and the role of a wife. And every single time I get a little nervous. What is it going to be like when I say, your role, your purpose, man, is to provide? It says it in Genesis 2. And your role and your responsibility, wife, is to be a helpmeet or a nurturer in all things to your husband. I get a little nervous. Out the door they go. They didn't. You guys didn't, did you? No, they didn't. They stayed there. Listen, if we're going to depend upon the Word of God, we might be viewed as archaic and patriarchal. Those are the new buzzwords. They've always had buzzwords for what we are. (laughs) It's okay. You'll be fine. God has a designed role in your home. He has a designed purpose for your life. Here's another one that I come up with, worshiping and serving God according to His holiness, not your selfishness. I mean, when we read in Psalm 96 and verse 8 that we're to worship in the beauty of holiness, I often wonder how people can read that and go, yeah, but that holiness might be the style that we like. And the answer is there's nothing about you that you like that is pleasing to God. We're unholy. He's holy. When it says the beauty of holiness, it's not the beauty of what we offer back to Him. It is who He is. And when we gather in a place like this, that's why this book is the primary thing we center everything around. It's the only thing that's important. You don't want my opinions. My poor wife has to put up with my opinions at my house. God bless her. God wants us to prove that His ways are best, and that He was and is trustworthy and dependable. I can tell you that He is and that they are. Proving God's deity, His dependability, brings us finally to His durability. And you say, well, isn't that the same as dependability? No, dependability 
is in the sense that every instance that we come to it, it works. Durability is it's good for every different person that comes to it. Let me give you an example. Uh, not long ago, Chris and Jen are here this morning. They're away on vacation, but Chris hooked me up. I don't know if that's the right word. That's like an old like 90s term, but, but he got me a pair of boots, right? He got me a great discount on them, and I don't even know the company, but I know this. When I read the box, it said 1,000-mile boots, and I thought, man, that is a thousand. I don't know how long I'd I would walk. I mean, I could walk from here basically to the bottom of Florida and the boots would still have a little bit of tread left on them, right? And so far, I think in those boots, I've walked like seven miles. Okay, a lot of those have been into the office and at my desk and and sometimes it's on a hospital visit or or perhaps it's out to dinner with Jessica. Uh, Occasionally, I've taken them on vacation and I've worn them there. And so I've got seven miles on my 1,000 mile boots. So I got like 993 more durable miles left. And those boots don't care where I walk, apparently, according to their guarantee, right? It doesn't matter if I walk on rocks or walk on pavement or walk on carpet. They've guaranteed me that they are durable for 1,000 miles, and I'm going to enjoy every mile of them. Do you ever see God and His Word that way? I mean, again, go back to his deity. He's eternal. So for his eternal existence, everything he says and everything he does is durable. It's applicable to every situation or every scenario. It doesn't matter if your circumstances are different than somebody else's. You try the word of God and it's durable to be used properly in your life. It works every time. The problem is most of us as Christians, we don't think of proving God that way. Well, but God didn't see this scenario. I mean, and I love God, but I'm just not sure he thought about this. Friend, may I say to you, there's no greater folly than to say that. But that's how we operate. I love what the psalmist said in Psalm 119 and verse 89. Forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. Isn't it good to know that it's not settled only in the earth? It's settled in the eternal It's settled in heaven. Abraham learned what God said would stand, and he would do it. His faithfulness brought the fullness of God's blessing into his life. His failures limited those blessings, to be sure. We can think of Hagar. We can think of his time in Egypt. We can think of his time with Abimelech. Yet those failures did not change the durability of God or his promises. They simply, or they, it just limited, I should say, the free course of God's working in those times. But every time that Abraham would obediently and repentantly come back to God, the use and the effect of those promises were as durable as they were before he sinned. That's the power of the Word of God. It's the power of His presence in our life. He wants us to prove Him. What's the application before we move to our second thought? God wants you to prove Him. That means trust Him. He embraces the fact that we prove His deity, His dependability, and His Word's durability. Abraham proved God, and in Genesis 15 and in Romans chapter 4, he believed God, and that process of proving God was counted unto him for what? Righteousness. That is right, in other words, by Almighty God. So success in our walk begins with proving God, but it moves then to pursuing God, number two. Once I have proved His deity or trusted in His deity, 
His dependability and the durability of His promise and presence. Once I've begun to prove that and I've become comfortable in that, it is then that I move from a place of just trust to trying or pursuing. Okay, well, it worked in this part of my life. Well, what about this part of my life? Well, it worked in both of these parts of my life. What about these two? Oh, it worked in these four. And it becomes a multiple effect. It's the idea of beginning to pursue God in every part of our life. James 4 and verse 8, James writes this, Draw nigh to God, and He will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners, and purify your hearts, ye double-minded. God wants us, in essence, to pursue Him. He wants us to draw near to Him. He pursued us to Calvary. From that salvation, we are then in a lifelong pursuit of Him. Song of Solomon 3. Now, some of the parents in here's eyes just got really big and said, you are honestly going to preach from Song of Solomon this morning? At least a portion, yes. It is the picture of the Shunammite and Solomon in love with each other, and the woman is pursuing her husband, her beloved It is a picture of we as the bride of Christ, we as believers pursuing our Savior, Jesus Christ. Oh, it has a very practical sense, and for those in the marriage counseling, we'll get to it in a couple months. But it has a very practical sense, Song of Solomon, but it also has a principled sense. The intimate relationship that we have with our Savior, Jesus Christ. And notice what the woman does, the pursuit of her. Notice with me her soul, particularly when we read these first four verses. Song of Solomon 3 begins by saying this, By night on my bed I sought him whom my soul loveth. I sought him, but I found him not. I will rise now and go about the city and the streets and in the broad ways. I will seek him whom my soul loveth. I sought him, but I found him not. She did not stop pursuing him, however. The watchmen that go about the city found me. By the way, there's a wonderful principle within prophecy, especially when you go to Ezekiel, of the watchman on the tower. That is the functioning role of a church, particularly of a pastor in a church. I am a watchman to warn you. She says, she went to the watchman and said, have you seen my beloved? Saw ye him whom my soul loveth. It was but a little that I passed from them. I went on beyond them, but I found him. Whom my soul loveth. I held him and would not let him go until I brought him into my mother's house and into the chamber of her that conceived me. In other words, until I brought him into an intimate knowledge of who I am. Solomon and this woman loved and pursued each other. So it is with God and those who love him. Abraham's faith in God drove his pursuit of God. Pursuing God, desiring Him above all else, letter A, fixes our purpose. It sets our eyes on what's important and right. Our created purpose is to glorify and please Almighty God. When we consider that within the realm of our walk, God leads, we follow. He walks, we come behind. Walking with God is the success we seek. And so if you fail or falter by faith, get back into the habit of seeking Him whom your soul loveth. The Christian life is meaningless, purposeless, and powerless if we pursue our own flesh our own lusts, our own desires, but meaning, 
purpose, and power all come as we walk in the Spirit. Here's how Paul said it in Romans 8, and we'll read verse 1 and verse 14. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Verse 14, for as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. Abraham, in our study of him to this point, had times when he wavered in his obedience to God and his word, yet he never had to spend time wondering about what God's purpose for him was. He knew that God had called him to that promised land. May I say to you this morning, believer, you should know, because your faith is in Jesus Christ, that God has called you to a promised life. He wants you to live a glorious life of success. This is not a name-it-and-claim-it principle. It is an obedient-by-obedient decision process. It fixes our purpose. Why am I doing what I'm doing? Letter B, it follows a pattern. Hearing God, obeying God, seeing God. That's the pattern. Hear, obey, and then see more or know more about God. Abraham was not perfect in his walk, far from it. Neither will you be perfect in your walk with God. We read of Abraham as we have studied his life. He failed in the world, Egypt. He failed in his flesh, Abimelech. Yet his pattern was one of pursuit, not perfection. That's why this is so important. I did not say prove God and be perfect before him. Yes, we want to be mature, but the process is pursuit. That's success. Don't stop trying problem for so many Christians is they get tired of trying, and I don't know why. The pattern in pursuing God is hearing God, choosing to obey with the result of seeing and knowing Him in a better way. What did Abraham hear, by the way? Genesis 12, he, I put these in your notes. God calls him to a new life. Genesis 13, God commissions him to occupy that new life and new land. In verse 17 of chapter 13, he says this, Arise, walk through the land. May I say to you, that could equally be said to us, Arise and walk through the life that I've given to you. It's the same thing. Genesis chapter 15, God confirms a blessing and fruitfulness in his life in the land. But that life will be coupled with trials and troubles for those of his generations. Abraham is also told that he is to sacrifice back to God in Genesis 15. And all I'm doing here is summarizing all of the statements in the Bible in Abraham's life where it says, and the Lord said, God spoke, or God said. These are all just summations of all of these statements. In Genesis 17, God confers a new name on Abram, Abraham and a new ordinance, circumcision, for him to follow. In Genesis chapter 18, God conveys conveys truth to him. What truth does he convey? He reveals to him life, that is the birth of his son, and death, the destruction of Sodom. By the way, if you come to God and his word, he will always expose life and death. He always will. Brother Mike preached on this a couple Sunday nights ago for us. That's what he always does. Chapter 22, he speaks again and convicts Abram about his priorities. In fact, he says very bluntly in verse number 2, Offer him, that's Isaac, there for a burnt offering. Abraham, there can be nothing more important than me. That's a lot of conversations. That's a lot of hearing with the ear. And as he obeyed, he began to see with his eye how God would bless him and what success looked like. Abraham heard from God. The pattern that he set forward is that when he heard from God, he acted. He, as the hymn writer said, trusted and obeyed. 
He demonstrated faith in action. God also speaks to us today. He does so in preaching, in teaching, in personal Bible study. The question for you this morning to take home is, what do you do with what you hear? Do you act on it? Abraham's success was found in his obedient pursuit of God. Pursuing God fixes our purpose. It follows a pattern. But finally, for this morning, it frees our potential. It frees our potential. Let me ask this question this morning. What is it that God wants your life to be? Well, the young people in here might be saying, I think God wants me to be a politician. We'll pray for you. <laughs> well, I think He wants me to be a doctor. Oh, that's good. Well, I think He wants me to be a preacher. That's very righteous. I'm saying that tongue-in-cheek. The point is we need more preachers. There's no denying that. That's not what I'm talking about. What I mean is this. What does God want your life to be? Because in the early hour, I joked with them. In that hour, it skews more senior citizen in the early church. Probably 65, 70 in that service. It's probably aging or trending towards the late 50s, early 60s. And they, and I joked with them, and I'll say it to you. They would say, yeah, pastor, you preach this point really good in the next service because there'll be some youngins in that one. Is that the point? No, the point is, every one of us, from our youngest years in trusting Jesus Christ to the oldest that God allows us to live, there is always a potential for what your life can be for God, and then there's the reality of what your life is for God. And that's how success is framed. Are you exercising the fullest potential that God has for your life? It's unlocked by faith. When God called Abraham in Genesis 12, had Abraham stayed in Ur or Haran, we would have known nothing about him. He would have been a blip in a sentence after the name Terah. That's it. What made him so special? I mean, he's Father Abraham. What made him so special? Just faith. The same thing you have. The exact same thing that you have. We look at these patriarchs, these wonderful studies within the Word of God, these great men and women of the Bible, and we sometimes fall into the trap of saying, I can't be them, and I suggest you are them. If you will just begin pursuing God as you should, you will unlock and free your potential. There's a wonderful passage in Romans chapter 6. In it, Paul is lamenting the struggle and the war. And in one part, he effectively, and I'll paraphrase here, he effectively says towards the middle of Romans chapter 6, this sentence. When you were in sin, you were free from righteousness. You, You had no liberty. You had no ability to exercise true righteousness before God. But now that you're saved, you can exercise. You are free to exercise your potential, we might say. Abraham's special quality was that he answered God's call. That's it. He acted in faith. Abraham had no more potential to shape his world than you or I do in Shaping ours. He had the exact same frame. He was of the same dust of the earth. 
The successful life for Abraham came because he was faithful in this life. I'm convinced when we get to heaven, it will be filled with people that you and I have never heard about. And God will greatly praise them for their faithful lives and the potential and the the reality that they lived for him. And friend, may I say to you, that is success. Success is being faithful. I pray that someday God will have an eternal verse written in his heavenly record. The book of Revelation tells us that he is recording a book. Oh, what's that mean? Oh, look at the time. We're out. But I hope, I pray, I prove and I pursue in my own walk with God that someday, not for egotism, but for excellence, there is a verse that reads like Genesis 24 in verse 1, and it says, And the Lord had blessed Kyle in all things. That's my hope. As imperfect as we may be, that's what success looks like. In closing, do you want to be a success this morning? Do you want your Christian life and your life as a whole to mean something? If that is so, then begin today living a life By faith, that is the life of success. It is measured as you live proving God and constantly pursuing God. For that's the life that Abraham lived. Father, help us, I pray, as we close our thoughts.